friends, it's Morgan, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. I'm particularly joyful to bring this podcast to you today because it's a Christmas gift for your soul. Every year, I try to pause this time of year from our normal content to offer something that simply nourishes your heart, inviting you into the wonder and awe afresh of Christ, of Christmas in the incarnation. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a specifically Christ-centered household. Didn't have a Christian worldview, though I was required to attend Catholic Mass every Sunday and serve as an altar boy. I remember as I was growing up from boyhood into the teenage years and the cynicism was starting to set in, the one time of year that I felt like I tasted the magic was Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve. I remember the incense. I remember the bells. I remember the candlelight and the singing of hymns somehow ushered in something that I could only name as transcendent. And there was an ache and a longing in my soul to want to believe in the magic, in the incarnation, in the reality of what God meant behind the miracle of Christmas. As years went by, I always wanted to return to that magic. And it's my heart to bring a bit of that magic to you on this day and in this season. So I want to start, before we get into the gift of a beautiful story, I want to start with an introduction from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where Lewis asked the question, where did it all go wrong? Where did creation break? Lewis goes on to say this. The moment we have a self, there is a possibility of putting ourselves first, of wanting to be the center, wanting to be God, in fact. That was the sin of Satan, and that was the sin that he taught the human race. What Satan put into the heads of our remote ancestors was this idea that they could be like gods. They could set up on their own as if they were created themselves to be their very own masters, invent some sort of happiness for themselves outside of God, apart from God. And out of that hopeless attempt has come nearly all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God that will make him happy. Lewis goes on to say, the reason why it can never succeed is this. God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way 
without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Friends, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is our fuel. He is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn. He is the food our spirits were designed to feed upon. And I think perhaps the incarnation, if it's meant to communicate and provide and become anything, first and foremost, it's to recover the reality that God himself is our food, is our fuel, and is the reality in which we were intended to feast upon. There's nothing like a great story to capture our hearts to return to this deep mystery and this deep truth. And with that as context, I want to read to you an excerpt from the story, The Carpenter's Gift. It's a modern-day parable, a book for children, but actually the child within each of our souls that needs to be immersed back into the deep magic of Christmas. It's written by author David Rubel, and it's illustrated with beautiful illustrations by Jim LaMarche. I've gifted this book to many over the years, and I've been so moved by it. In the last few years, I reached out to the publisher and asked for their permission to share much of it with you for this Christmas gift. And so I'd like to read that story to you. And if you're interested in picking up the physical copy of this book with its brilliant illustrations, you can find it on Amazon or any retail stores. And the link in this podcast on becomegoodsoil.com has a direct link to purchase it through the publisher. Let's dive in. Nearly a lifetime had passed, but Henry could still remember what it felt like to wake up in an old shack, especially during wintertime. In those days, the Great Depression gripped the country, and like many people, Henry's parents were out of work. They couldn't afford coal for the stove or warm blankets for beds, so young Henry usually woke up with a shiver. But he didn't complain, because it was nobody's fault. Instead, he visited warm places in his mind. One day in 1931, actually the day before Christmas, Henry was reading a book when he heard the loud toot-toot of a car horn. He opened the front door and saw his father behind the wheel of a borrowed truck. Go for a ride, Sparky? His father shouted over the rumbling engine. You bet, Henry shouted back and raced inside to get his coat. Riding in any sort of car was a special treat for Henry not to be missed. Soon, he was sitting beside his father, nose pressed to the window glass. They drove into a nearby grove of evergreens. Henry breathed in the strong, familiar smell. Here's the plan, Henry's father said. See those spruce trees, Sparky? We're going to cut them down and take them to the city. Why, Henry asked. To sell them as Christmas trees, his father said. Even though New York City was just an hour's drive away, Henry had never been there before. He shivered with excitement at the thought of seeing all those tall buildings scraping the sky. When Henry and his father reached Midtown Manhattan, they began looking for a place to park and unload. Driving down Fifth Avenue, they found a good spot next to a construction site. Mind if I set up here? Henry's father asked a worker. 
The man looked them over. It didn't take him long to figure out that Henry's father was down on his luck. No problem, the man said. I'll give you a hand. My name's Frank. Then he turned around and called out, Hey, Mikey, Polly, help him out here. For the rest of the afternoon, Henry and his father sold trees to passersby. By the end of the day, they had earned enough money to make the trip a success. We should be getting home now, Henry's father said as the sun set behind a tall building. What about the rest of the trees, Henry asked. I thought we'd give them to Frank and to the other fellows. Henry nodded in agreement. The best presents are the ones you don't expect, he thought. Because it was Christmas Eve, the workers were having a little party. Frank and the others took the tallest of the trees that Henry and his father had given them and decorated it with whatever they could cobble together. Paper garlands, cranberries threaded onto a string, and even a few shiny tin cans. Henry added an ornament of his own made of newspaper that he folded into a star. In the background, he could hear his father talking with Frank about grown-up things, the hard times for Henry's family, the shack in which they lived. But Henry didn't want to think about those things. He just wanted to look at the most marvelous Christmas tree he had ever seen. It had been the best day that Henry could remember, and he didn't want it to end. He stood before the decorated tree, enchanted. The street lamps had just come on. The tin cans glittered in their light. If ever there were a magic moment, Henry thought, this is it. He decided to make a special Christmas wish. He wished that one day his family would live in a nice, warm house. After making his wish, Henry opened his eyes. His gaze fell on a pine cone lying on the ground. He picked it up and was turning it over in his hands when he felt his father's grip on his shoulder. Time to go, Sparky, his father said. Henry stuffed the pine cone in his pocket, said goodnight to the workers, and walked with his father back to the truck. By the time they arrived home, it was well past Henry's bedtime. You must be exhausted, his mother said, slipping off his boots straight to bed with you. Shrugging off his coat, Henry felt a bulge in his pocket. It was the pine cone. He took it out and looked at it, remembering the joys of the day and the magic of the tree. The next morning, Henry's parents let him sleep in late. In fact, it was well past eight when he heard the toot-toot of several car horns that woke him up. Rushing to the window, he saw three trucks pulling up outside. All were loaded with lumber and other building supplies. At the wheel of the first truck was Frank, and behind him were other Rockefeller Center workers. What were they doing so far from the city on this Christmas morning? Frank got out of the truck. After you left, we got the thinking, he said. There was all this extra wood lying around, and we had the day off, so we thought we'd drive up and see what we could do to help you with this house of yours. Frank looked the shack over, taking in its patched walls and ill-fitting windows. I think we'll have to make a fresh start, he said. Henry's father didn't have words for the way he felt. He simply took Frank's hand and shook it. The sound of sawing and hammering traveled far enough that Christmas morning for Henry's neighbors to wonder what was going on. A few walked over, saw the new house going up, and spread the word. By mid-afternoon, a dozen more people were pitching in. As the new house took shape, Frank called Henry over. See those boards, he said, pointing to a stack of cedar. We're going to use them to trim the windows, but they've got nails in them. I need you to pull the nails out. Henry moved to fetch the boards, but Frank called him back. 
Digging into his toolbox, he handed Henry an old claw hammer. You'll be needing this, Frank said. By nightfall, the frame of the new house was nearly done. By week's end, it had a roof. Soon enough, it was ready for Henry and his family to move in. In the spring, Henry's parents celebrated with a potluck dinner. They invited everyone who had helped build the house. Henry was glad to see Frank again. He was ready to return the claw hammer, but Frank wouldn't take it. You keep it, son, he said. It may come in handy. After dinner, Henry sat happily in his very own room. He thought about the Christmas wish, and he couldn't believe it had actually come true. He knew he should do something special to express how thankful he was. He thought long and hard about what that might be. Finally, he decided to plant the pine cone. Maybe he could be Jack from the beanstalk story, and the pine cone could be his magic bean. Henry planted the pine cone beside the new house. In time, a seedling emerged. Henry watered it and weeded it. As time passed, both he and the tree grew tall and strong. Henry especially liked to hammer away in its shade, and he became quite a good carpenter, building many projects with his skilled hands. As Henry grew up, however, he became busy with other things, got married, moved away, and had a family. Most summers, though, he returned to visit his parents. On lazy days, he sat beneath the tree with his son, teaching him how to build things with the old claw hammer. As he got even older, Henry sometimes wondered where the time went. One day, he was a young boy, waking up with a shiver. The next, he was an old man, living alone, not needing a big place anymore. He decided to move back into the house where he had grown up. To keep himself busy, Henry began working on the house, which was showing its age. He especially liked using the old claw hammer, its polished handle smooth and dark from wear, comfortable in his hand. One day, as Henry worked on the front porch, a man drove up to see him. The man told Henry that he worked for the Rockefeller Center and that it was his job to pick out the Christmas tree each year. I just love your spruce, the man said. When I saw it from my helicopter yesterday, I knew it had to be this year's tree. Henry wasn't sure what to do. He knew that being asked was an honor, but he and the tree had been together for a long time, and he was reluctant to let it go. I know that I'm asking a lot, the man said, but if you agree, I can promise that your tree will bring joy to millions of people. Henry thought some more. And when the holiday season is over, the man continued, we mill the tree and use the lumber to help a family in need build a new home. A family in need. Suddenly, Henry felt a shiver, and the calendar in his mind flipped back to 1931, driving to New York City with his father, meeting Frank and the other workers, building the house, planting the tree. He knew what he had to do. I've been given so much, Henry said. I want to give something back. The tree is yours. Just before Thanksgiving, Henry received an invitation to the tree lighting. On the special day, a car picked him up and drove him all the way to Rockefeller Center, where he met the family whose new home would be built with the tree's lumber. They hugged Henry and thanked him many times for his generosity. Afterward, Henry stood off to the side and watched the family's young daughter. It's so beautiful, the girl said softly as she stared up at the enormous tree. And then something caught the child's eye. A pine cone had fallen to the ground. 
Picking it up, she turned it over and over in her hands before stuffing it into her pocket. If ever there was a magic moment, Henry thought, this is it. Henry walked over to the girl, and they stood together, gazing at the glittering tree. And then Henry reached into his coat pocket, and he pulled out the old claw hammer. Here you go, Sparky, Henry said. You'll be needing this. After the close of the carpenter's gift, David Rubel offers these words. Since 1933, countless New Yorkers and countless visitors to the city have come to the Rockefeller Center to marvel at the world's most famous Christmas tree. Adults who visited the tree as youngsters now bring their children and grandchildren to share in the amazement. The first tree was erected by construction workers digging the foundation for the Rockefeller Center in 1931. They wanted to show their appreciation for having jobs at a time, the Great Depression, when so many others were out of work. The 20-foot tree, which they pulled their money to buy, was decorated with garlands and other ornaments handmade by their families. Today, the Christmas trees that grace Rockefeller Center are much grander, measuring 70 to 100 feet tall and about 40 feet wide. Each is decorated with 30,000 multicolored LED lights strung on five miles of wire. Tree selection begins with helicopter flights over New York, New Jersey, and New England. Using a laptop equipped with GPS, the chief gardener of the Rockefeller Center records the locations of promising trees and then visits them on the ground. Once the choice is made, a team of 20 arborists fells the tree and uses a 280-ton all-terrain crane to lower it onto a custom-built trailer. When the trailer and its police escort reach Midtown Manhattan, the crane lifts the tree onto a platform beside the Rockefeller Center skating rink. The annual tree lighting is a spectacular event attended by crowds of New Yorkers and tourists watched on television by people around the world It takes place the week following Thanksgiving. In 2007, a new tradition began when Tishman Spire, the company that owns Rockefeller Center, began donating the wood from the tree to Habitat for Humanity. Habitat uses the lumber to help families in need build affordable homes. Friends, as this modern-day parable of the carpenter's gift comes to a close, and as we consider what it's like to recover the deep magic. I want to close this episode with one more piece from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, where Lewis says this, I am making an attempt to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Friends, in this time of year, my invitation to you is to recover afresh the reason why that Jesus came, God incarnate, to communicate and make available in an experiential reality that God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. God designed the human race to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, our food that our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. And that is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. Friends, I invite you to a 90-second pause, a transition, to be curious in this season of Christmas, in the wonder and awe of the incarnation. Where is God inviting you to receive him as your fuel, to feast on him as the food your spirit was designed to feed on. Merry Christmas from Become Good Soil. Let's pause and linger for 90 seconds, and we'll be back together soon.